Hello and welcome to the Indoor Environment Show. I'm Bob Krell, founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine, and as always, joined by my co-host, Don Weeks, who is the president of the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, IEQGA. Hey, Don, how are you? Hi, how are you doing today? Very good. We're uh, closing in on the holiday season. Uh, I don't know. Uh, apparently, we're going to receive some of your Arctic air down here in Syracuse uh, later in the week. Uh, is it cold? Oh, lucky you. Not, is it cold in <laughs> Ottawa right now? Uh, it is cold, but uh, we had two feet of snow over the weekend, so that was ah. more the event that we had. So we're we're doing good now. Then we're getting back up and running. Excellent, excellent. Well, we we have snow right now, so I mean, of course, we're the snowiest city in the United States, typically. So no surprise there. <laughs> That's true. Anyway, uh, so great show today. I, I'm excited yeah. for this one. I, I love the topic. So Sounds I guess without good. further ado, uh, well, oh, no, further ado. First, I want to mention that this program is a collaboration between the Indoor, excuse me, International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, ISIAC, and the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, IEQGA. So uh, they are the sponsoring organizations and Healthy Indoors uh, Magazine, uh, we are the production company. There we go. Sounds good. All right. Well, then let's move, bring our guests in and I'll do the introductions. Hello, uh, welcome uh, our, uh, to Ula and to uh, Deshaun. Uh, and let me give the, Ula the first uh, um, introduction. Uh, she's been involved with uh, indoor, indoor environmental quality and healthy buildings for 25 years of experience. And she's a visiting professor, senior research associate at the University of Tulsa since 2006 and a professor at the University of Urdu since 2020. Her research has focused on collecting and analyzing empirical, empirical data and developing methods to assess dampness and mold, uh, ventilation adequacy, thermal conditions, and cleanliness in homes and schools, as well as both self-reported and objective standardized health and learning outcomes. She has coordinated several studies on, on ass assessing the impact of energy retrofits on indoor environmental quality and occupant well-being. Recently, she is developing a uh, master's program in healthy buildings and supervising six P PhD students in the field. Ula also serves on the ISIAC board or served on the ISIAC board of directors from 2016 to 2020, and she's currently leading the ISIAC STC 34. It is developing. Indoor air, indoor environmental guidelines. Hello, Lua. How are you? Hello, good, good. Thanks for having having me, and thank you for the introduction. Yeah, and now I'll introduce our, your uh, your your colleague, uh, Dushan Lucina, is an ass assistant professor at the Ecole Polytechnique Federale de Lausanne (EPFL) and serves as director of the Human Oriented Oriented Building Environmental Laboratory. He conducts fundamental and applied research in the field of sustainable and healthy built environment with a special, a specific in, in, uh, focus on indoor and, and air pollutants, dynamics, exposure science, and building ventilation. Uh, Dusan holds a uh, master's and, and uh, bachelor degrees in mechanical engineer from the University of Belgrade, completed his joint doctor degree at the National University of Singapore and Technical University of Denmark followed by a postdoctoral appointment at the University of California, Berkeley. Prior to joining EPFL, he also served as the director of standard development team at the International Well Building Institute. Dusan is an active member of the boards of various science, scientific and professional uh, groups where he, he examines 
the future of buildings with an aim to ensure high indoor in environmental quality for occupants with minimum energy use. So welcome, Dushan. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. And uh, I, I really like the way you pronounce uh, EPFL in French. <laughs> so, good job. Yeah, I, I was well, impressed that he actually pulled that off because as, as he started to go there, I was like, hmm. Well, as you know, uh, well, at least Bob knows, and I think Ula does as well, is that I'm married to somebody who's a francophone from Quebec. So I, I have a little bit of a head start on that one. <laughs> um, well, let's uh, start with Ula first. Um, as I mentioned um, in your introduction, you uh, have a doctorate in, 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 in scientific technology from Tampere University of Te uh, Technology, TUT, civil engineering, and a master's degree from TUT, civil engineering. So how did you become interested in indoor and in, uh, in air um, quality? So yeah, maybe it was maybe like a coincidence because when I was studying towards my, during my undergraduate studies, my sister was studying medicine at the same time. And that led to uh, some discussion between us about the possibility to combine building and health sciences and that then led me to start studying environmental health as a minor subject. And um, I found a summer job in the field under Aino Nevalainen's group. That was the time when dampness and mold issues were really constantly present in the media in Finland. And my summer job and the, then later on my master thesis were dealt with that topic. And I just continued that path towards doctoral degree under INOS supervision. Yeah, so you, you basically it, it, it relates back to um, what you were seeing other researchers doing and what you wanted to do was something similar to that, I imagine, 25 years ago. It was still a relatively new topic back then. Yes, it really was. And we didn't have any like programs ready for that combination of civil engineering and, and indoor quality and health. So, but that started that that time and uh, now we are much further developed in that area we can offer our students programs that are specifically designed for this type of uh, field great and Zushan, you uh, have a, a bachelor's and master's degree as i mentioned in mechanical engineering from the university of belgrade in serbia and a joint phd in civil environmental engineering from the National uh, University of Singapore and the Technical University of Denmark and a postgrad a doc from the University of California, Berkeley. So how did you become interested in indoor air quality? Yeah, well, uh, uh, growing up in, in Belgrade, which is capital of Serbia, it's, it's kind of hard not to be aware of air quality issues, both outdoors and indoors. Uh, Belgrade is uh, one of the most polluted cities in the world in the winter time. And also indoors, a lot of people smoke. So I was sort of always aware of the air pollutant issues, but I never actually expected I'm going to end up working in this field. Uh, so because I have a background in mechanical engineering and HVAC system, which is very sort of system-oriented approach. Uh, but then when I moved to, to Singapore and started my joint degree in Singapore and Denmark, I really got interested. Uh, uh, I got introduced to the field, uh, met many experts, and there you go. So uh, both of those colleges or universities, I should say, in Singapore and Denmark are, are, have been in the indoor air quality um, research areas for many, many years. Wh 
who is it that you would say would be one of your main influences? Um, some of the folks, some of the professors are, uh, I know actually from, from previous uh, meetings, which uh, professor or professors that really kind of gave you a, a boost in that area? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. In in Singapore, I worked with the Tam Kwok Wai and Chadra Shekhar, who uh, got me introduced to the field. In Denmark, I worked with Arsen Malikov, which was also great inspiration. And probably the biggest inspiration uh, was uh, Bill Nazarov. Uh, you, you, you probably know of him uh, from University of California, Berkeley. Yes, I do. Yeah. So that's you're doing work with him at the uh, University of California, Berkeley at the moment? Uh, no, no, that was uh, kind of five years ago, and now I five started my, my okay. own lab in Switzerland. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about. So uh, the Switzerland lab, I, I will not try to pronounce it again, but EPFL, uh, you're uh, the assistant professor and head of human-oriented building environmental labs at the School of Architecture or Civil and Environmental Engineering. So what about, what do, can you tell us about your current research on sustainable health of healthy buildings? When a primary uh, focus on pollutant dynamics in relation to occupant exposures, building ventilation and controls. So just to say EPFL stands for, when you translate it, uh, Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne. Um, Anyway, so yeah, since 2018, I, I founded a new lab. Uh, currently, we have uh, 12 members. We're still in a growth phase, and pretty much each member is working on a different but related project. Um, and as a lab, our overall vision is to explore intersections between people and buildings by ensuring good air quality uh, with minimum energy use, or with, uh, at least without compromising energy use. So a couple of projects we have uh, at the moment are more applied in collaboration with industry and that more relates to indoor quality sensing, ventilation controls. Uh, but majority of the project that we run are linked to fundamental air quality research to uh, link to air pollutant dynamics and exposure, inhalation exposure assessment. Um, so for example, at the moment uh, we have interesting project, we are trying to understand how human uh, human presence and activities in indoor environments, they influence uh, particle uh, burden and chemistry and, and microbial burden of indoor air. We look into different variables such as physical activity, uh, cognitive engagement, use of personal care products, uh, and so on. And we're also looking into importance of human skin and clothing and breath on the uh, inhalation exposure. These are some of the interesting things we work at the moment. Great. So I, I, I want to jump in on that one. Sure. Uh, so, uh, so with your research, uh, since since the COVID pandemic, in the last couple of years, has that that's been some of the focus then, right? When you're looking at uh, the inhalation and the exhalation from the occupants in the space, is that part of what you look at or, or not necessarily that was not not necessarily we're we're more interested in uh, you know not uh, kind of risk of uh, infection spread uh, of course this is also like very much linked to our project but it was it was not uh, our main main focus uh, for study okay and uh, you will, I'm, I'm familiar with you with some of your research particularly with regards to schools and indoor air quality uh, you're a professor, obviously, at the University of Ulu in uh, Finland, as well as a visiting professor at University of Tulsa. 
Can you give us some idea of what your current research, uh, what are you doing some research on at the moment? So I started participating in research in the U.S. during my postdoctoral years uh, over 20 years ago and have continued that until now. And these have been mainly studies related to school buildings and um, also relate, related to some, we've done some home intervention studies. And, um, but during this time, at the same time, I have been also continued work, working in Finland first with the National Institute for Health and Welfare. And then since 2020, I started uh, to work at the Oulu University where I'm currently leading a research group of also about 12 persons we are we are increasing, developing a young group. We have about five ongoing research projects on various topics, and one specifically is on the effects of energy retrofits on indoor environmental quality and health in the wider scope of climate change. change. So it's in sort of balancing risks and benefits related to energy efficiency and that's uh, that's one of the topics, main topics for us today to discuss. So. Yeah, I mean, and that is a big topic, obviously, in uh, in particular in Europe right now with the uh, uh, shut off of, of the uh, natural gas and other um, products from the from Russia. So the study that you're doing obviously predates that, I would think, uh, and, and it's looking at the energy retrofits in buildings. Are you looking specifically in in, in housing or is it uh, is it other buildings like schools or things of that nature? We have been mainly focused on housing and uh, especially multifamily buildings, but uh, we also have done some case studies in schools and other, other building times and looking to also expand that in the future. And what, what have you, have you published uh, any of your studies, uh, recent ones? Yes, so we started the study on effects of energy retrofits back in 2005, and we did the first study during 2000, no, actually it was 2010, 2015, where we followed up, uh, we did measurements pre and post retrofitting buildings, but it was a short term follow up, it was only about one year after retrofits when we did the post retrofit measurements. And now we are continuing that and we are in fact following these same same homes about 10 years after the retrofits and we are trying to confirm that the effects that we saw during the first study uh, remain similar or because there is the possibility that we we see some effects that um, that wouldn't last. But have you seen some effects that have lasted over that period of time? You, you did the initial study in 2010. It's been 12 years since then. What, what are you finding now? Uh, well, we just collected the data last spring and we are currently analyzing that. So we don't have anything final yet. But in fact, like the indoor environmental conditions in these homes seem to be surprisingly similar now than they were 10 years ago. So. Um, it seems like the effects are more in the long-term nature. And of course, we saw many positive effects in occupant health and well-being based on their self-reported health. And we haven't analyzed that, those data yet, but hopefully we see similar trends so we can really say that uh, it uh, 
we can get go benefits from improved energy retrofits. But there are some risks as well that we saw, especially in uh, certain building types where there weren't adequate ventilation. So that has to be sort of uh, taken in, into account. That's always, you know, that that's always been a, a kind of a, a balancing act, right? In uh, you know, for trying to manage buildings, though, as long as I've been in the industry, actually, way before predating that in the early seventies, where it always seems like there's there's always, in my mind, there's always been a compromise between energy efficiency, right? Having you know good building performance versus indoor air quality. And it was always like, well, you know, you have to sacrifice one for the other, and. I'm, what I'm getting from both of you is that this is no longer going to be an acceptable paradigm, right? I, you know, we, we're, dealing, we're dealing with sustainability issues and climate change, and we, we obviously have to affect how we do energy uh, usage with our building stock. But indoor air quality is becoming even, I think, more of a keen focus, right? Especially now in light of the last couple of years with the pandemic, right? Right. We can't accept, like, reduction of the indoor environmental quality when doing these retrofits, but there is a great potential. We have seen over 50% like energy consumption reduction after these retrofits. It depends on the starting point, of course, if, if, the, if the starting point is low energy efficient building, you can, you can really see large potential for energy saving, but uh, it's by increasing insulation and air tightness of the building envelope so that then creates the possibility of ventilation um, rate uh, decreasing. So we have to ensure that there is adequate ventilation that is not compromising the air quality. And uh, Dushan, um, as sort of a follow-up to that, uh, what can you tell me about uh, energy policies for building retrofits and new construction? How does it impact indoor environments? Well. <clears throat> at at least in Europe, but I always I would also say globally, uh, energy policies are predominantly focused on reduction of uh, heating losses, really, and uh, and probably now during energy crisis in Europe, this is the case more than ever. Um, but there, are, I think, quite a lot of studies that clearly show that uh, uh, these retrofitting strategy which singularly focus of on energy uh, conservation uh, that they can easily result in a worsening indoor environment uh, so the most common and most uh, studied example is addition of thermal insulation which of course uh, leads to reduced air leakage uh, but if this is not sufficiently compensated for proper ventilation it results in in, in increased uh, contaminant concentration uh, but at the same time uh, now in europe we are uh, facing uh, you know more and more heat waves so um, adding thermal insulation can also contribute to overheating in a, in a summer month so yeah, these are just uh, some examples that singular focus on energy could result in a compromised air quality uh, and indoor environment. So this is something I believe that energy renovation policies should take into account. And, and uh, in Europe, mostly, um, I'm, am I correct in assuming that there's not uh, the use of air conditioning that much in the residential environment? 
uh, in, a, in a lot of the climate zones in, in Europe, whereas in the United States, we're seeing more and more residential air, con air conditioning. Obviously, commercial buildings all have it here, mostly. Uh, we're very rarely naturally ventilated. But, um, you know, it, it's, it, that, that's an issue, right? I mean, obviously, if you're, if you're dealing with uh, raising temperatures. That is uh, correct. Um, relatively speaking, <laughs> Europe is uh, using almost non-air conditioning units compared to the, the States. However, I believe SIPSI uh, has predicted that the uh, uh, cooling demand will increase by several times by 2050. And this uh, will, of course, be reflected in the uh, increased sale of the AC units unless we, we do something about it. Uh, so uh last years in in switzerland we really have uh, heat waves uh, during the summer time and uh, there is actually official statistics showing that the sale of the ac units has been increasing i don't know about the rest of the europe but i would say that switzerland is rather representative and, and, uh, and that puts yes, a substantial hopefully oh, talking <laughs> at once great why don't we go with Ula? what are we gonna uh, say Ula? Yes, even in Finland, like traditionally, we haven't used air conditioning because the actual need has been maybe two weeks maximum during the summer. But uh, at the same time, also the occupant requirement level has increased. And now there is like you can clearly see the trend of more heat pumps being installed and even uh, air conditioning systems in Finnish buildings as well. And we have seen this overheating possibility also during the winter if the, for example, after retrofitting, if the heating system is not adjusted to, to uh, like, to the level of the new construction. So there is, there is a great potential actually for energy saving and better indoor and water quality by just adjusting the heating, ventilation and air conditioning and not to waste the energy too much by heating and cooling and then overcompensating it by opening windows, for example, and so on. Bob? Well, what I was going to say is, um, you know, uh, uh, Deshaun, you, you mentioned how uh, the... Um, you know, I just anticipate you said it's a, a, a double or a triple uh, usage in air conditioning in the residential sectors in the coming uh, decade or so. I, I, I'm paraphrasing that terribly, but 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 you know, if that if that is the case, that's going to be a substantial draw on the energy grid during during uh, the the cooling months, right during the summer, because that air yeah. conditioning equipment uses an awful, awful heavy uh, electrical load typically uh, yes yes so if we purely like rely on on the like mechanical systems uh, i don't think uh, we will be able to really make it to the climate goals and in addition to that uh, there is some other research showing that people are in a way uh, becoming addicted to cooling you know we are <laughs> we are more and more like dependent on this uh, very narrow dead band that been a range of indoor temperature set points. Uh, whereas in the past, you know, we used to be able to tolerate much wider range of temperatures. So this is also interesting kind of psychological aspect to think about along. Uh, so uh, before I forget, uh, the SIPSI stands for what is that? What are the initials? Uh, yeah, for? that's the 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 UK organization that produces various standards and guidelines for uh, uh, ventilation and, and thermal comfort in the UK. And uh, yeah, I cannot exactly now tell you what's the abbreviation. 
Uh, that's fine. But if you if you if you don't mind, I would be appreciated if you if you uh, would tell us after the show uh, what the report that you were mentioning, where, where people can get that report. Because I think it would be of interest in that regard. Absolutely. All right. So. Um, what, what we had mentioned it just briefly just a minute ago, but you know, as, as Bob had mentioned, uh, since uh, the late 70s or thereabouts, you know, the, there's been this question about whether energy and indoor environmental quality are indeed co in conflict or not. And what are the strategies we can think of to jointly tack tackle both energy and in indoor air quality and thermal comfort? And uh, I'll start with Dushan, if you could start on that one. Yeah. Uh... I'd say that a lot of building stakeholders do believe that uh, focus on indoor environmental quality will certainly be associated with the additional energy investment. And I've already given some examples about, uh, uh, well, if we do reduce ventilation rates to save the energy, right, uh, that will result in higher uh, uh, pollutant concentration in the air. That's a typical example. Um, and. Uh, you know, this kind of uh, view does certainly lead to a notion that indoor environment or indoor air quality goals and energy goals are in conflict. But uh, I think that situation is more complex than that uh, because uh, there are many energy efficient strategies that could degrade indoor and indoor air quality, but also there are many strategies that can jointly tackle IEQ and energy uh, goals or at least if we focus on one we do not compromise uh the other one this is what i've been also teaching my my students at at epfl um and uh, you know when we think about the strategies that can jointly uh tackle both indoor environment and energy targets i think what is very important is to think uh, hierarchically uh, we cannot simply, you know, put the most energy efficient AC unit. This is not really a way to go. We need to really start from very, you know, source control or uh, load reduction in the first place uh, before we move on to passive strategies. And then we can end with the active strategies and we can talk about energy efficient active system and so on. So I think in, in practice, very often we are not following this hierarchy, which is in a way causing problems. So we need to include also more architects into equation, not only building service engineers to kind of resolve the issue. And uh, there are many examples we can think about, for example, uh, good maintenance, commissioning, recommissioning of the building. We know that it's important that the design of the building is maintained throughout uh, the life cycle of the building. And we have a good evidence that proper commissioning of the building systems can provide a substantial energy saving and also it can benefit the indoor environment. But in addition to that, there are many other examples. We can rely much more on natural or hybrid uh, ventilation. Uh, we can better operate our windows with some low cost intelligent systems. Uh, often we're over filtering the air. In, in fact, we're filtering much more than what we need in many parts of the world. Um, and I think also air distribution in mechanical systems is not sufficiently utilized. This is, these are kind of some examples of, from top of my head that we should focus on much more in, or, in, in order to really tackle these goals together. You know, certainly reducing the load is like paramount, right? I mean, that's the 
it almost it's and, and in the United States, I can speak you know speak to this country. Uh, until recently, you know, in the last several years, the the effort was always to uh, you know to add all you know these add-ons, you know, air sealing, which I, I, there's a lot of value, obviously, in all all of that building envelope work and, and the insulation work. But the focus was never on really reduction, you know, reduction in, in the first place. And it was always like, well, we can we can have more efficient equipment. Well, that's great. You should have that. <laughs> but, you know, the primary thing is the usage, I think. And it, so, so, I mean, do you see that there has been a paradigm shift on this where that's becoming more of the standard practice to, to tackle that load issue first before even worrying about the technology so much? Yeah, it's a good question. On the on the research side, uh, I I think people are, you know, becoming more aware, but but in practice, it's it's hard to tell. I'm not exposed to like practice every day, uh, but uh, yeah, I just uh, think that this is the only way. I mean, to to really do the thing in a in a right way. So, Ua, uh, as a follow up to that, uh, do you see conditions in? Uh, well, you get to see conditions both in the U.S. and 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 in Finland. Are you seeing a change in that attitude about indoor environmental quality and energy efficiency, or are they pretty much still an emphasis on on the conflict between the two? Well, I I think it's there's a lot of discussion about this, but perhaps like among the researchers, more as Jason indicated, and uh, it's not really gotten into the practice yet to the great extent. But I really agree with Dusan's like hierarchy, and I think that's that's the key is that we do everything we can using passive means, and then 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 do the active ways of controlling when needed. And uh, perhaps to add to that, one important component is just the good quality of construction to begin with, and that is causing major issues also now with the energy crisis in Europe because because some of the buildings are in such poor quality that uh, they just can't can't be in this type of they need a lot of uh, metered energy to stay warm and um, it hits people this type of energy poverty really hard certain groups of population and and that would be something that uh should be tackled more i would think that, so that, but that's Head absolutely on. true in the united states too i mean we really um th there's a major disparity right in socioeconomic levels on you know and how efficient buildings run some of the most least efficient buildings with the worst indoor environmental quality issues are you know obviously in the underserved minority communities in this country and, and really our construction in the united states even now, still isn't fabulous when you see new construction, especially in the residential sector and the multifamily sector. Stuff isn't, you know, there's, we have the knowledge, we know how to seal buildings, we know how to design a good building envelope, we do know how to do all this stuff. But in actual practice, you still see buildings improperly flashed, water issues, you know, leakage issues that, that could be avoided. You know, and how do we change that, I guess, is the question. I'm just posing it to everybody. So, um... Well, in schools, are you seeing a change in the, I mean, in the United States in particular, but also here in Canada where I am, there's been an emphasis on schools and indoor environmental quality uh, due to the, um, well, to the pandemic. Uh, there's been use of uh, various types of devices, uh, measuring uh, CO2, 
uh, and also some air cleaners that have come in and, 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 uh, and uh, you know, the, the districts, the school districts buy, buy these by the thousand and put them in various classrooms. Are you seeing a, that changing the way in which a research can be conducted since there's been so many new things that have been added to schools, uh, particularly regarding uh, indoor air quality? Yeah, that's a great question. We have actually one ongoing um, follow-up follow study that has been going on for six years that we started, uh, where we started looking at the effects of um, like renovation, large-scale renovation, where the goal was to really improve the ventilation, for example, up above the current standards and to be able to measure the benefits. And then COVID came, and um, I don't know if the data will be comparable to the situation um, before that. So we, we still haven't, we haven't really started looking at that yet, but I, I'm expecting to see some, some really modifying and confounding effects of schools adding all those air cleaners and different practices. So that has been really the the pandemic situation has really really uh, changed the school operations, and and now we can see that um, it's been it's been taken much more seriously the need to ventilate and and hygiene and other things. Yes, we, we, yeah, I've seen a lot of new research coming in. And, and we also are doing some, but uh, it takes time to get published and all that, so. That's for sure. But it, one of the things I'm seeing is the pandemic kind of accelerated that whole uh, research, research uh, practice in some ways, not always, but there, there was these pre-publication uh, uh, articles that came out in various publications about various aspects of this whole pandemic situation and there was an emphasis on schools because there was what whether or not schools can reopen under the current conditions and uh, you, you've probably seen some of these preprint uh, articles that have been coming out ab about some of that yes it's such an important thing that the schools stay open for the children and also for their parents to be able to work so um it's been it's been getting a lot of attention and um yeah they have been really interesting studies we started studies in schools about 20 something years ago and and we were able to see that for example ventilation adequate ventilation in school associates with um with uh, academic performance and, and health outcomes. But now there has been much more uh, research published on especially the link between ventilation and health. And, and, and we have been seeing these um, um, like uh, estimates on how much per, li per liter per second you can expect to see improvement in attendance, for example, and that's really important information for the decision makers so that they can, it, it works as an incentive to improve the, the, the schools and uh, that, that's what has been lacking in the past. So, But you know, a lot of what happened in practice though during COVID, uh, because improving ventilation usually involves major mechanical, you know, 
retrofits and things that that weren't feasible so they were always looking for the the real fast solution right we had to reopen schools and it it, it wasn't so much air changes it was air cycles through filtration devices is really what happened which and if you know if it's predominantly filtration devices and it's not gas phase filtration the only thing you're really addressing is particulate which is fine for aerosolized bioaerosol particles you're trying to get but doesn't solve general indoor air quality problems with off-gassing and all the other issues that happen you know, elevated CO2, all, all, you're not fixing that by putting portable air cleaners in rooms. You know, so we, you know, have we really fixed indoor air quality or we just, that was the focus really just on one aspect, aerosolized particles. Yeah, and there is a little gap between there, what has been done before and like suggested that uh, held, <clears throat> like on looking at from some point of view, like four liters per second per person ventilation rate would be optimal and that was before covid and now we have seen these new studies that are suggesting much much higher uh, ventilation rates based on the based on the spread of infection so i i think we still need to do a lot of work and uh so that we we can develop some some guidelines related to these things it's just now we have like these two very distinct um, sort of um, opinions or yeah they do seem to be opinions they do seem to be more based on opinions than on actual numbers <laughs> research you know in many ways there's a lancet article that i'm sure both of you are familiar with that came out just recently talking about increased ventilation as much as 25% above what the ASHRAE 62.2 levels are. Uh, and uh, it's signed and written by a number of very prominent uh, professors, but I'm not sure that there's a relationship necessarily between increasing it by 25% and uh, improved indoor air, air quality. Which brings well, me the, back to, to uh, do, yeah. go ahead, Bob, Bob. I was going to say, that, which which in turn, 25% increased ventilation would be a horrific energy penalty unless you really come up with modified equipment that's so much more energy efficient to utilize that for that. I like talking to mechanical engineers. To like <laughs> go ahead, uh, Ula, go ahead. Yeah, but does it have to be like that all the time or can it be somehow right. based on the risk? Yeah, that's so what we, we have, haven't been able to determine yet, have we? And it's uh, it's 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 an issue, and which brings me back to something that you said, Dushan. Uh, um, you had said something about overfiltration, and I wanted to make sure that we got a, a full understanding of what you mean by that. What what is exactly would you say would be all, all, you know too much filtration? What are you looking at? Yeah, that's a, that's a good good question, and uh, I have a student that that is looking into that uh, topic so it turns out that uh, we are often over filtering or uh, sometimes also under filtering uh, the air because uh, we don't really properly assess uh, uh, you know the building site urban typology and outdoor air quality in, in immediate surroundings of the building if you look into ASHRAE 62.1 standard, the procedures for determining outdoor air, air quality, it's based on uh, some, you know, EPA compliance, the very remote uh, air quality stations, which are not actually representative of the air quality around the building. Uh, so this kind of calls uh, for really more knowledge and more attention to 
understanding the actual environment in the building surroundings and uh, uh, designing with a with a with the right filter you know because over filtering the air has a huge energy penalty but also we might be removing from the air something which might actually be beneficial from us so i mean you're suggesting like the need for maybe even real time uh both indoor and outdoor monitoring for particulates and chemicals and, and that sort of thing and have that be part of the mechanical uh, the, the equation in the mechanical operation yeah that would be probably the best uh, best scenario when we have the you know real-time data and the building can dynamically respond to any changes. Uh, however, at least in a design stage, if we could have a better understanding of the context where building is, that would already be a big step forward. So one of the things that uh, we're seeing is, uh, is the role of current green labeling schemes uh, and particularly on buildings and things of that nature. So. Deshaun, could you give us a little bit of uh, background on what, how these current uh, schemes have evolved? Uh, sure. So, yeah, uh, generally when we talk about green building schemes, we have plenty, plenty of them around the globe, but they usually have the common goal or objective. So they want to make you know people healthy and comfortable and productive without compromising ecological integrity of the planet. So this is, if you look into definition of all these different rating systems, they will explicitly say that. Now, in practice, of course, some of them are more successful in achieving that goal, some of them less. Um, but what is very interesting to look into historical evolution and uh, to recognize that these green building uh, certification systems uh, have had a strong evolutionary nature, so first of all, they emerged uh, in 1970s uh, as a response to the global energy crisis, uh, where uh, you know there was a singular focus on energy performance, and that was often linked to negative effects on humans, sick building syndrome symptoms, and other illnesses. So that kind of uh, uh, propelled uh, emergence of these green building systems. And then there was a period in 19. Uh, 90s where uh, we kind of focused just on some very major hazards like tobacco smoke, asbestos, radon, uh, and major health threats, which was then followed with a really focus on climate change in, uh, in 2000s. Uh, and then only in the last maybe 10 years or so, we have, uh, we sort of entered the period of uh, the notion that buildings should go beyond the do not harm uh, approach uh, and uh, instead of that we should try to improve uh, performance and comfort and health of of people by you know maximizing all the benefits uh, and uh, this has resulted in emergence of some uh, green rating systems which uh, are you know very much focused on, on humans you you might have heard of uh, of some of them on the other hand uh, if we talk about effectiveness of these green labeling systems you know we can observe effectiveness in terms of the energy and effectiveness in terms of indoor environment so if we look into the existing literature on the energy performance uh, we can see that uh, in fact uh, performance of individual green certified buildings vary a lot uh, so 
we can say that on average green certified buildings they do perform better compared to non-certified buildings but there are many uh, variability from case from case to case and we also know that the higher certification level does not necessarily translate into higher energy performance and it's in a way similar to indoor environmental quality there is a bit of mixed evidence but on average green certified buildings tend to perform a little bit better compared to non-certified buildings so however there is again an issue because they do not perform as well as we expect them to perform if you imagine sort of a satisfaction scale from clearly dissatisfied to clearly satisfied uh, non-certified buildings will be around neutral level and then green certified buildings will be towards satisfied but still far away from the end of the scale so the bottom line there is that on average they have better performance but they still uh, this level of improvement is in my opinion uh, not sufficient yet one of, I mean, one of the earlier uh, incarnations of the rating scales, with like the green rating scales, really were were based more on commissioning, right? At the, you know, you you get the, your green certification, but you, there was really no long term uh, monitoring of the building and and long term performance, right? You, you know, you meet you meet your codes, you put in your you put in your bike racks, you do the things to make your you know your platinum standard, but you know, in the end, right? That they they ended up not performing that well, but some of the newer standards like the well standards are really looking more towards ongoing monitoring correct correct the newer uh, green building uh, rating schemes are looking into this dynamic uh, performance evaluation and recertification continuous recertification so to say however um, there are just a few programs that are doing this and the problem is that it's completely voluntary so you can do it if you want if you wish you get some maybe extra credits but uh, it is uh, it is not really compulsory. Well, there is some uh, uh, some obligation, like you have to do once in three or five years uh, this uh, commissioning of the of the system. But when it comes to this continuous uh, performance re-evaluation, then that is quite uh, voluntary still. So, which brings us to the idea of uh, indoor environmental or, in, or indoor air quality uh, standards. Um, there's been some talk about doing that uh, in uh, organizations such as uh, uh, ASHRAE and also AIVC recently has been looking into that as well. Um, well what, what can you tell us about what's happening with regards to the standards that are coming out with regards to indoor environmental quality? So I have been involved in leading this ECIAC STC 34 activities related to developing an open database on indoor environmental quality guidelines, and uh, it can be found uh, under uh, www.ieqguidelines.org. And there uh, we currently have data from nearly 40 different countries as well as international organizations. And uh, we have started reviewing the data also. So there is some uh, information available there. We are trying to collect and share it just to, um, to, to make it available for everyone. And um, Yes, there is quite a variability you can see in these guidelines, national guidelines, and, and those also including those that are uh, 
developed by professional organizations. And um, I think the reason for that, uh, those differences, one, one of the reasons could be that we really don't have that many health-based guidelines available. And when they are available, for example, if WHO has, has given some health-based guidelines, it seems like also different countries are adopting those and using them. But then uh, because, because of lack of research and, and other reasons, those type of health-based guidelines cannot be given and, and there is still a need to, to um, give some kind of uh, guide, guidance or set up standards, then it's kind of up to the organizations, individual organizations, what they are basing them on and uh, it's causing the variability there. So we'll we'll make sure that we include in the um, the the, the um, webcast the the, the www um, address that you gave. Um, how long has that particular committee been in, involved in that issue in 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 ISIAC? Well, I think we started working on this, collecting the information um, in 2017-2018. But the committee itself, I think, officially launched in 2019. And um, and since then, we have really developed this open database, and um, it's it's been taking a lot of work from a wonderful group of individuals, our committee members, and uh, we just now are at the point where we have started uh, looking at the data and hoping to review and and find some interesting information about it. For example, not right now there are certain pollutants that are that are timely in Europe during this energy crisis situation, and we have start looking at those and see what kind of guidelines there exist. For example, related to extreme temperatures, but also like CO, CO2, PM, radon, which all all can be impacted if this uh, energy crisis is going on. And it's it just started in the last fall when uh, we started getting a lot of questions about how low indoor temperatures can be set to save energy so that it's still safe and 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 from the health perspective or how high is the risk for dampness and mold when temperatures are reduced and how much we can tweak ventilation to save energy and. These are the questions that we have been we have been dealing with, and uh, it's good to have guidelines available. Of course, they can't be applied if energy systems are destroyed or shut down. But in many cases, it's it's still useful to be able to rely on 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 if not fully health based guidelines, at least some standards that are based on critical evaluation of both health and environmental factors. Yeah, I think it is important to have that. I, I think that, as you mentioned, that there's quite a few countries that do have these uh, guidelines, but I would imagine somebody like WHO or, or ISIAC with WHO working together would, would have a much more credible chance of, of setting some of those guidelines for, uh, well, as you mentioned, thermal comfort, as well as uh, CO2 and CO and, 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 and PM 2.5. So I'm hoping that, that that does come about and that uh, the various organizations do work together on this. 
you think that's going to happen, uh, Ula, at this point? Well, it's um, yeah, it's hard to say, but I I hope so. I mean, I'm sure there are reasons why um, why there aren't, for example, health-based guidelines for certain things like ventilation. But uh, but I I think it's the lack of research and uh, mm -hmm. what what is causing that. It's not possible to set those type of you know, numerical values, for example, but uh, hopefully in the future, there will be more. more yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's a movement afoot just in the last uh, couple of weeks with ASHRAE and uh, the White House in the United States uh, coming together to talk about uh, setting some, uh, some guidelines or, or standards, actually. This would be a, an ASHRAE standard is what they're looking at to uh, talk about various... Uh, indoor environmental qualities uh, areas. So that should be an interesting process. And they're particularly interesting to me is it may, they want it done in six months, which I think is virtually impossible. Uh, but uh, it's certainly an interesting process to see, you know, the uh, upper echelons of the United States government to be so intimately involved with, uh, with working with ASHRAE to, to set these standards. We'll see what happens with that. And of course, um, if when there is an uh, organization as ASHRAE, when they set their standards, they are also followed in, in many countries and, and so on. So. Yeah, they go into the building codes. I mean, for very, very many uh, countries, including Canada and in many uh, uh, areas of the United States. So if they're going to set a standard, it's going to be going to be quite interesting to see how people react to it. Uh, it's uh, it probably will be a difficult process to say the least. I wanted uh, to ask um, you, uh, Deshaun, about this this editorial that you uh, you wrote or were co-author on an editorial in Indoor Air, the publication from ISIAC entitled "Why Has the COVID-19 Pandemic Generated Such Global Interest from the Engineering Community?" And maybe you can tell us uh, what the COVID-19 pandemic influences how it is influenced the trade-offs between energy use, climate change, and IEQ public health. Yeah, uh, so, well, I'm not an airborne infection risk uh, expert, but I was, I, was, I was lucky to get invited uh, to, uh, uh, to, for, to this editorial together with Dr. Julian Tang and uh, Professor Hugo Lee. So there was a special issue on indoor environment and COVID-19. And in this special issue, there, there were a few studies summarized on aerosol transmission of virus indoors. Um, but what, what I can speak about is, you know, generally speaking, COVID has definitely changed the way we think about human health in indoor spaces. And uh, it's interesting that we, in a way, have a collision of these two different, in a way, opposing problems or forces. On one hand, we have climate change and energy crisis in many parts of the world. Uh, uh, especially Europe. Uh, so there are a lot of efforts to uh, reduce the energy use. But on the other hand, we have COVID-19 pandemic that focused the attention of on the importance of good ventilation or air purification of indoor air to reduce the airborne transmission of uh, SARS-CoV-2 and other airborne diseases. Uh, so, but yeah, we know that extensive ventilation leads to high uh, energy use and costs. So we talk about the two kind of different problems, but they are certainly intertwined. So 
provision of uh, healthy and safe spaces uh, should certainly not compromise ecological integrity of of the of the planet uh, well also like locally uh, and uh, i think we need to think about uh, buildings they're able to anticipate so we need to think how future buildings will have capacity to to anticipate likelihood of certain events and uh, to prepare for them and then of course we will always have some sort of trade-offs between energy and environment but we need to try to minimize them again going back to the hierarchy of approaches and this is the way how we also minimize these trade-offs but uh, yeah we also once we cannot minimize them anymore we need to know how to prioritize over, over these conflicting requirements uh, so this will be i think uh, this is and it will be quite important uh, thank you. Uh, we're running up against our deadline for an hour, and uh, you guys have done terrific in answering our questions. Uh, I'll give each one of you uh, one last chance to perhaps convey something about energy and indoor air quality. We'll start with Lula. Um, well, yeah, I guess for me, the the most important thing is to do more research on these topics because because there isn't really that much research data available on, for example, on these effects of improved energy efficiency and energy retrofits on occupants' health and well-being and long-term studies. These are complex questions to study also, but uh, we need that kind of uh, data to be able to, to then um, give recommendations and take this into account when making decisions and developing guidelines. Thank you. Uh, Dushan, do you have some last thoughts? Uh, yeah, well, I, I agree with, with Ula. We um, definitely don't know everything yet. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I do think that we probably know enough to be able to take action. So now, you know, if we talk about... Uh, energy renovation of buildings we already know enough that these actions must be accompanied with uh, you know actions not to compromise uh, indoor environmental quality i also think we need to work on the education part uh, it is very important you know uh, hvac engineers are taught very little or nothing beyond how humans are impacted by thermal effects so you know we, we really need to look into that uh, and uh, really understand that it's not uh, that better indoor environment doesn't necessarily mean uh, worsening energy performance of the building. Also, I think we need to ask ourselves a question. What will be the cost of not certain things, you know, not only like what is the cost of investing in better ventilation, but actually what is the cost of not uh, doing these upgrades on our building? So. Um, and, you know, maybe finally, I think uh, whole system thinking, it's, it's, it's quite important. We need the integration of design process, not to look uh, at things very individualistic. So throughout the building life cycle, whole building systems, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, materials, uh, finishes, paints, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, this is probably the way to go, whole system thinking.
and and that's I think that's par that's paramount, right? I mean, you're looking at the whole system and looking at the life cycle, which in the United States we really don't look at life cycle very well. It's all first cost. Everything's first cost, and it's silly. But anyway, we need that change. <laughs> Well, I want to thank both our guests uh, today for, for talking about uh, this, these very important topics. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think that there will be ongoing discussions going forward on this, but I, I really appreciate you spending your time to, to talk about some of the research that you're doing and how it will, in fact, uh, you know, practice going forward. So back to you, Bob. So, yeah, uh, with, I guess we've we've come up on the hour again, um, which it goes fast, doesn't it? it always does. Uh, one thing I'd like to like to you know wish everyone a happy holiday season and, of course, uh, a very uh, healthy and prosperous new year. Uh, we'll be back again in January. We don't have a, we don't have a date yet, do we? We're still no, not working yet. on that. Sorry. But, yeah, we're, but we're, we're here every month. So we'll <laughs> be back sometime sometime toward the latter part of January. You'll see us again. Uh, we'll be a year older. No. Uh, not, really. <laughs> not quite, not no, quite. <laughs> not at all. So again, want to remind everyone that uh, this program is a, uh, a joint collaboration between ISIAC and IEQGA. Uh, we produce with Healthy Indoors. And uh, again, thank you so very much for watching. And we will see you all again uh, the next time we do the Indoor Environment Show sometime in January. Thank you. So...